This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Friday. We are doing one more day of questions with you today. Mm-hmm. Um, Daphne, how are you this morning? I'm doing really well. I'm also very glad that you're getting this question on me. I've really lucked out. <laughs> Dang it. But this is another super high-yield question because this is one of those things that we don't see very often, but they like to test on. So without further ado, as they say. Oh, this question 50 a mother brings her three-month-old infant to the pediatrician because she's concerned about her infant's low tone and persistent head lag very astute mother here on initial examination you know the following severe generalized hypotonia with the infant's legs being more affected than the arms marked head lag bulbar weakness with poor suck and swallow areflexia facial sparing with normal extraocular movements. Initial tests reveal the following. A normal creatinine phosphokinase or CPK. The electromyography, EMG, with nonspecific denervation, fasciculations, and fibrillations, um, but normal nerve conduction. And a muscle biopsy demonstrating atrophy of the motor units. What is the most likely pathogenesis of this condition? Is it A, degeneration of the anterior horn cell, B, disorder of the peripheral nervous system, C, genetic defect of the neuromuscular junction, D, immune process involving the neuromuscular junction, or E, an inherited disorder of muscle caused by altered protein? Okay. They didn't even give you the names of the the disorders. It's actually not that bad. You got it. You, You know what it is. This actually might be easier, actually. Oh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> because then you have to know which name goes with which problem. <laughs> uh, right, right. But I think this is just, this is, this is straight up SMA, right? Um, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, where okay. you have the ba- babies with this sort of, uh, what is it called? The, the jug, jug handle appearance, where they just like, just like, just yeah, drop slip in your through arm. your hands. Yeah. Right. And that's genetic. And um, so if you remember, I remember the drawing from uh, neuroscience. You remember when we drew the butterfly? Like, the butterfly, exactly. Yeah, okay. And that <laughs> sensory stuff comes back to the back of the butterfly, to the posterior horns, and then the, the motor stuff comes out from the anterior horn, right? Okay. So I know that in SMA, it's anterior horn. Wow. And... If you remember anterior horn, and the reason that I remember that specifically okay. because anterior horn sounds like autosomal recessive. So <laughs> I don't so, know. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. But SMA type one, um, I think of the anterior horn, autosomal recessive, and um, and that's really all I know. <laughs> so okay. going back, going back to the answer choices, the pathogenesis is degeneration of the anterior horn cell, choice A. It's not a peripheral nervous system disease. 
uh, genetic defect of the neuromuscular junction. That's tricky because it is a genetic mm-hmm. defect, but not of the neuromuscular junction. I think um, I think that might be more similar to like, uh, oh, what is that disease? You know which one I'm talking about. Myasthenia gravis. Know. There, there. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, immune process involving the neuromuscular junction. That is not it. And then inherited disorder caused by altered protein, but of the muscle. So no, mm. it's not a muscular disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very ne- okay for extra credit. What? What is the what is the you know the name of this thing? Um, I I know it's something Hoffman because That's it's right. because it's anterior horn autosomal recessive and the H. I mean, and don't don't don't. don't just... Oh, I see. Anterior horn. The A is autosomal recessive. H for horn Hoffman. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Word Nick Hoffman, disease, spinal muscular atrophy type 1. That's correct. Let's see, if, let's see if this is one of these diseases that they changed the name because of who Verding Hoffman was. <laughs> That's right. That doesn't sound too great. Okay, but I'll tell you the rest while you look up the, the uh-huh. historical and political context here. The scenario described in this vignette is most consistent with an infant with spinal muscular atrophy type 1 or Werdnig-Hoffman disease. This is an autosomal recessive disorder, like you said, that leads to degeneration over time of the anterior horn cells. But the onset is typically less than six months of age. And I just wanted to go over some of those features again, because I think that's really um, important when you get a question um, like this. Hold on. Waiting. (laughs) I have to go back up, okay? No worries, no worries. They had normal creatinine phosphokinase because it's not really a muscle problem. They have uh, normal nerve conduction, but that's at the periphery, right? Because that's where they're doing the EMG. Um, The baby has severe generalized hypotonia, marked head lag, poor suck and swallow, areflexia. So everything's down except facial sparing with normal extraocular movements. And if you've ever had an older patient with SMA, you know that they, they do a lot of communication, um, you know, using, uh, you know, eye movements, things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of these other answer choices. Um, bear with me here. All right. So neuromuscular junction defects include acquired transient neonatal myasthenia gravis and congenital myasthenia gravis. The EMG of affected infants demonstrates a progressive decline in amplitude with repetitive nerve stimulation. Congenital myotonic dystrophy, those are inherited autosomal dominant muscle disorders typified by a muscle biopsy showing abnormal small and round muscle fibers with large nuclei and sparse myofibrils. Now, I remember I didn't know anything about Riley Day before studying for this test, but they love to ask about it. Riley Day syndrome or familial dysautonomia is a rare autosomal recessive disorder of the peripheral nervous system. Um, that can be diagnosed by pupil constriction in response to metacholine eye drops. So that's how it gets all mixed up too uh, with the the myasthenia gravis questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, mm-hmm. the Verdning Hoffman um, disease was uh, named in late 19th century, 1891. It sounds like, by the way, 
It sounds like, so it was described first in 1891 by mm -hmm. Guido Verdning, mm -hmm. who basically did um, autopsy on two children that passed away and identified SMA. Um, and he said that the, uh, the science, some article on Science Direct mm -hmm. mentions that this first report was followed by independent reports of additional cases from Johann Hoffman mm. in 1891 and 1892. So Hoffman, I don't know how he grafted himself onto the, the name. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. He just so, said like, I second this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, yeah. So, um, so interesting that, uh, yeah. He wrote on, history, basically. Yeah, not really. I mean, yeah. it's kind of usually the, it's, but it's happening at the exact same time. And it's so funny that like at, uh, that nobody described this, but in 1891, then two people stumble upon this. So that's just peculiar. Okay. Okay. Um, next question. We are doing question. Let's see. We're going to go down to 51, I believe. Um, okay. Daphna. We're talking about hearing again. Which of the following is not a cause uh, of conductive hearing loss? Choice A, abnormal development of the cochlear hair cells. B, canal stenosis. Canal stenosis. Canal stenosis. Yeah. Fluid in the middle ear. Choice C, microtia. Choice D, stapes fixation. Choice E. Which okay, one is so I not. like to think about okay, conductive hearing loss. Uh, you just can't, you know, stuff is just not getting in there. Is how I like to think about uh, conductive. So any kind of blockage, outer ear type of thing, sensory neural hearing loss. I feel like is kind of like the inner ear. Once we once we get past there, okay. There's also a great Storybots episode on hearing. So if you need a refresher on how the ears hear, how the eyes see. Listen, I'm just saying Netflix, Storybots, watch it with your kids, learn something. I'm just putting it out there. You need a little study Unwind. break. Unwind. If you're not Unwind. studying, you don't, don't, don't. study break. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So abnormal development of the cochlear hair cells. So those are deep on in there. I, I think that's probably part of sensory neural hearing loss. Canal stenosis, absolutely. Fluid in the middle ear. I'm pretty sure that's the most common cause of conductive hearing loss. Uh, don't quote me on that. Microtia. So the ear is uh, usually small, abnormally mm -hmm. developed. So yeah, I think that can lead to conductive hearing loss. Stapes fixation. I don't know how far in that is, but it's farther. It's not as inside as the hair cells. So I'm going to go with a is the least is not like the others. <laughs> that is correct. Um, a is not um, a cause of conductive hearing loss. So conductive hearing loss results from the interference of the transmission of sounds from the external auditory canal to the inside, to the normal inner ear. Um, and in this type of hearing loss, bone conduction is good and air conduction is poor, right? So um, this is how I always struggled with that. What? Bone and air. Well, I don't know if you've noticed. Have you seen these headphones that use conductive hearing loss? Yes. So that hearing, use conductive sound. Hearing, so, yeah. Yeah. So basically you put the headphone and there's it's nothing. kind of crazy. There's nothing over your ear. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Um, it sits on the back of the ear. Yeah, exactly. Right on the bone. 
obviously. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so that makes sense that if, if you cannot use the ear canal, then, then bone is the other way to transmit uh, sound waves. So, um, so conductive hearing loss can result from fluid in the middle ear. It could reduce to microtia, which again would impair the, the, the anatomy of the canal. Canal stenosis is another one. Or stapes fixation. So if I remember correctly, the stapes is one of the inner ear bones that's supposed to really transmit this wave to the inner ear um, uh, organs. And if it's fixed and it's not moving, well, then you're not going to get the transmission of sound. So, so that, that kind of makes sense. In sensory neural hearing loss, there's decreased bone and air conduction due to abnormal development or damage to the cochlear hair cells or the auditory nerve. I think we've spoken a lot about hearing loss, so I'm kind of over it at this point. Yeah. So, but just to clarify, the stapes are in the kind of middle ear. So your ear middle canal. Ear. What did I say? Right. Inner ear. Oh, but, sorry. So the, the ear canal is kind of the outer ear. The middle ear, you know, is this area behind the tympanic membrane. So that's where the, the stapes are, you know, beating the membrane like a drum. And then beating the inner like ear, yeah. then the inner ear is where the cochlea and all the hair live. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Let's give the people one more question. Oh. <laughs> I know. I don't but want to do more questions, but not on hearing loss. Oh. No, no. We... So actually, that's what I wanted to say. I did find a great question. This is Neurology Question 56. Okay. But uh, we had to pass through a lot of hearing loss questions to get to it and a lot more questions about the hearing tests. So really high yield. High Review yield that stuff. That's Review true. Review that stuff. Okay. Um, okay. Question 56. You are taking care of a term newborn with a myeloma meningocele. I'm not going to ask you the developmental process. That's not the point of the question. The infant's mother is a recent immigrant from Mexico and did not have prenatal care. Pregnancy was uncomplicated and the family history is negative for neural tube defects. Which of the following statements about neural tube defects is false? False. We're looking for the false statement on neural tube defect. Let's go. That's right. So is it A, increased maternal body mass index is a risk factor for neural tube defects? B, more than one-third of neural tube defects are not preventable by folic acid supplementation. C, periconceptional supplementation with folic acid can prevent neural tube defects. D, previous effective pregnancies do not increase the risk for further recurrence. Or E, the mechanisms by which folic acid prevents neural tube defects is largely unknown. Hmm. You're looking for the false choice. Right. Man, oh man. So there's all these answer choices about <laughs> folic acid. So let's just go through these quickly. Um, we know that folic acid supplementation can help reduce the incidence of neurotope defects. So that's question. That's answer C. I think mm-hmm. that's then correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but does it is it a safe, a foolproof type of situation where if you've taken folic acid prenatally, then you're good. You will never have a neural tube defect. Mm. We know that's not to be true. So that's why answer choice B makes sense too as a true statement. More than one third of neural tube defects are not preventable by folic acid supplementation. To be fair, I don't have that percentage in my head right now. But Yeah, it makes I was sense. hoping it was less. <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense that... that um, that you would be able to reduce some, but not all. And then finally, the mecha- choice E, the mechanism by which folic acid prevents neural tube defect is largely unknown. That's great because I don't remember it either. So <laughs> I'm glad to know that there was uh, <laughs> that it's actually unknown. Sometimes you're like, 
I don't remember how this works. And you're like, oh, it's actually unknown. That's great. That that's <laughs> I'm, I'm not deficient in anything. Um, which leaves me with two difficult mm -hmm. answer choices, which are, does the BMI of the mother uh, increase the risk factor for neural tube defect? Or that having a previous child um, does not increase the risk of further recurrence? I have to say, that's very tough. Mm -hmm. That is very tough. Um, and um, it's tough because on the one hand, I'm pretty sure that A is true, that having an increased body mass index is a risk factor for a neural tube defect. But on the other hand, I also know that um, it's it would be odd for someone, for pathology to have some presence in a family and not increase the risk down the road so that it's almost like a... a yeah. But I'm pretty sure about A, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with D as the, the previous, false statement. The false statement. It's not um, that previous pregnancies do not increase the risk of further recurrence. Like really, that that doesn't. Uh, yeah. You are correct that that Oof. statement is false, okay? Neural tube defects represent one of the most common birth defects. Their prevalence varies with geographical location and racial differences. In the United States, the prevalence is 1 in 2,000, whereas the prevalence in South American countries is several fold higher, 3 per 2,000 in Mexico, like this um, vignette. Introduction of mandated folate fortification reduced the prevalence of the disease. However, even after these measures, the numbers remain high. The etiology of neural tube defects is complex, and both environmental and genetic risk factors have been identified. Several studies have shown the efficacy of folic acid supplementation in reduction of neural tube defects. However, more than one-third of neural tube defects are not preventable by folic acid, highlighting the significance of other factors in the etiology of this disease. For example, maternal diabetes and increased body mass index are both associated with an increased risk for neural tube defects. And since hyperinsulinemia is a common denominator for both conditions, it is tempting to hypothesize that exposure of the embryo to elevated glucose concentrations could interfere with normal neural tube development. Another well-established environmental risk factor is maternal use of certain antiepileptics such as valproic acid. And in addition to environmental factors, several observations have also implicated the genetic factors in the development of neural tube defects. For example, monozygotic twins have a higher concordance for neural tube defects than dizygotic twins. And neural tube defects are associated with chromosomal anomalies such as trisomy 13 and 18. Furthermore, the siblings of children with neural tube defects are at higher risk than the general population. And you can remember that because if a mom has had a neural tube defect in a previous pregnancy, they are asked to supplement with even higher folic acid um, than in the previous, than, mm -hmm. than is routine. Okay, we did it. We did it. We made it to the end week. of the week. All right. Definitely looking forward to the next one. And uh, see you on Sunday for Journal Club. All right, buddy. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.
This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.